Welcome to the ASA Podcast. Welcome to the podcast for the December 22 issue of Sonography. I'm Kerry Thoyers, Editor-in-Chief, and this podcast today is focusing on clinical guidelines, a topic pertinent to this issue because it's got two articles in it which are both reporting on different aspects of clinical guidelines. So in the first article by Clark et al., the authors investigate how Australian cardiac sonographers use industry guidelines when performing transthoracic echocardiography. They found that the most commonly used guideline was published by the American Society of Echocardiography, but sonographers also used a combination of other published guidelines and workplace protocols to guide their practice. And they found that there was quite positive attitudes relating to using guidelines, but in reality, it didn't translate into consistent practices across Australia. So the authors advocated for an Australian guideline coupled with investigations into how guideline uptake could be improved. The second article by Lou et al. appraised 10 guidelines on chronic venous insufficiency ultrasound um, for their quality and found that these guidelines were below par. And similar to the article by Clark, they also advocated for development of Australian guidelines, um, which should be developed with rigorous methods. So together, these two articles raise a few issues around clinical guidelines for sonography more generally. So um, I've invited Gary Liu, the author of the second article that I mentioned, to speak with me today to discuss a few of these issues using his knowledge of guidelines around chronic venous insufficiency ultrasound um, and and guidelines in general. So welcome, Gary. Oh, hi. Um, hi, Carrie. Thanks, ASA, for giving me the opportunity to speak about the current practice of venous insufficiency ultrasound and the needs for quality ultrasound guidelines. And this is the area I'm always passionate about. So, Gary, tell me, why do you think why do you think it's important to have quality guidelines to guide the practice of sonographers? Um, I'm a vascular sonographer, so I'm going to speak on the ground of vascular ultrasound based on my experience and the results of research project I did as part of my PhD. As we all know, for chronic venous disease. Duplex ultrasound is used as the first line of investigation for mapping out the anatomy and incompetent veins. In Australia and New Zealand, the scans are primarily being performed by sonographers, and these scans require the sonographers to have advanced knowledge in venous anatomy, pathophysiology, hemodynamic, and also therapeutic management of chronic venous disease. The study we performed revealed there are considerable variations in the performance of ultrasound and quality of reporting between different practices. The main contributing factors included unfamiliarity with the UIP consensus document, utilization of different technical guidelines and protocols, and also lack of motivation and engagement with phlebology ultrasound training. Out of the many variabilities, I'd like to give three examples to help people understand why performance of ultrasound in compliance with quality guidelines is important. The first one is looking at the anatomical variations at the junction. So we found anatomical variations at the Safner Poplar II junction was evaluated by only 64% of the surveyed sonographers. Because the anatomy of the SPJ is highly variable, 
I think it's important for all the sonographers to take a note and also document the presence of the SPJ, the location and the connecting vessels. It's not rare to find a common trunk formed by the deep vein and SSV below the SPJ. And we've seen a number of cases in which the common trunk was never mentioned in the initial report, and patients develop gastrocnemius DVT after ablation treatment. And the second facet I'd like to discuss is perhaps the assessment of non-sacrinous reflux. We've found at least a quarter of the sonographers do not routinely assess non-sacrinous veins, an example of which can be vulvar varicosities, glute veins, and the lateral thigh system. The reflux associated with these veins can produce unique signs and symptoms, often requiring the sonographers to perform a most thorough examination with specialist knowledge and clinical intuition. So if the guideline doesn't include or emphasize the need to assess non-saphenous reflux, I think at least 10% of those patients will be misdiagnosed and leading to persistence of signs and symptoms treatment failure, and early recurrence. And the last facet I'd like to bring people's attention is the assessment of perforators. Based on my study, more than a half of the sonographers are not very confident in making diagnoses about perforator incompetence. Using diameter measurement alone to judge a perforator is not correct because perforators can be a source of reflux, but they can also be a re-entry point draining the reflux flow from superficial to the deep system, we must evaluate the functional role of the perforators by assessing both direction and duration of the flow. When, when we're performing the scan, you may find many re-entry perforators are enlarged with the diameter proportional to the severity of superficial reflux. And there is plenty of clinical evidence to suggest these re-entry perforators will normalize themselves after superficial reflux is eliminated. Our study found only 36% of the sonographers are currently assessing the perforators properly. And that's not to mention only 16% are using the criteria proposed by NZSVS. In clinical situation, when a re-entry perforator was treated after erroneous diagnosis, and there's no doubt venous hypertension will further increase, resulting in worse skin changes and symptoms. So I hope all my sonographer colleagues can take the opportunity to read our paper, which was published in the British Journal of Ultrasound. And this can help people to recognize, recognize the current issues with CVR ultrasound and also understand why a quality ultrasound guideline is needed. For us to be able to standardize the performance, make clinically appropriate judgment, and ultimately optimizing patient care using the latest scientific evidence. Thanks, Gary. So um, my take from all of that is that there's a lot of variations in practice and a guideline can help with that and, more importantly, um, help with um, improving practice, which then obviously leads to better patient outcomes. Is it important, do you think, for guidelines to be written specifically for a region or a country such as Australia or Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. So the answer is yes, because in most part of the world, they have doctors and specialists doing their own scans. The advantage of this model is clinicians can undertake a full assessment of their patients. The scan is probably not as thorough, but 
Clinician performed scan is an ideal approach to address patients' clinical concerns. In the USA, they have national professional organizations to regulate the sonographers. An example is the RPHS, so Registered Phlebology Sonographer Exam and Certification System. But in Australia and New Zealand, we don't have specified training requirements for sonographers performing CVA ultrasound. There may be some highly skilled sonographers working in the vast lab or vein clinics, knowing exactly what the doctors need them to measure and document. But many sonographers are not working closely with these doctors treating varicose veins, and they don't perform severe ultrasound on a regular basis. When the sonographers don't have a quality guideline to follow, ultrasound imaging become well, ultrasound imaging may not provide sufficient information to answer treatment-related questions. And we often observe patency and competency of the veins are well-documented in the ultrasound report generated by radiology practice. But morphology information, such as venous aneurysm, dysplasia, and torturosity, is usually not well-described. And these are important elements to be used by surgeons and phlebologists to formulate the treatment. And as for post-op scan, I think all sonographers need to know what the veins are going to look like after the ablation or stripping surgery, so the result can be accurately documented. Although there are some existing guidelines, most of them haven't included examination techniques and the rationales for taking measurements. Beside all this, I think ergonomic issues should also be discussed in the guideline. And as we know, scanning posture is very awkward because there's a lot of neck rotation and bending over involved. Based on my study, over 90% of the sonographers are having muscular pain while performing the task. So I think having an ultrasound guideline specifically written for the Australasian sonographers is very important and will be very helpful in providing guidance and recommendations. Thanks, Gary. Um, I do like your suggestion about including ergonomics in a guideline. And I also agree that many guidelines, um, also in other areas of sonography, not just in vascular sonography, are written more for the clinicians um, who are managing the patients rather than addressing all the information that sonographers require. So what do you think makes a good guideline for sonographers? So I think a good guideline should be written to serve the purpose, translating the best evidence into practice. As for CVI, I think these guidelines should be written to improve diagnostic accuracy, reduce inter-observer variations, minimize the utilization of resources, and most importantly, to promote the best available treatment and discourage harmful interventions. We performed a critical review of CVI ultrasound guidelines and this was published in the Sonography Journal. In this study, we found a lot of the review articles and institutional statements are mistakenly labeled and used as a guideline. And they don't actually fulfill the requirement of the guideline. And that's why they were rated as poor quality. A good guideline for CVR ultrasound should have all stakeholders' involvement, not only the sonographers, but also to include patients wound care nurses, and doctors treating varicose veins. In addition, guidelines should be developed using a systematic approach and a rigorous methodology. CVR ultrasound guidelines should provide specific instructions and recommendations. For example, the guidelines should state why the scan needs to be performed in the afternoon instead of early morning, 
What is the evidence behind it? Why the standing position should be used against the supine position for assessing venous incompetence? In situations when patients feel a bit lightheaded or fainting, what do we have to do? And lastly, I think a quality guideline should also be practical and applicable so the sonographers can easily follow it in everyday practice. It's, it's disappointing that there's um, a lack of quality guidelines, but I do think that this will probably improve. There's, there's now a lot of literature on best practice in developing and writing guidelines, and I've also seen that as um, newer guidelines are being written, they're um, getting better in their quality. Um, do you think it's a problem if quality guidelines exist for sonographers, um, but they're not adhered to or used? Yeah, so I suppose if sonographers practice ultrasound in adherence to the existing guideline, the guideline will serve as a useful tool for decision making. And problems arise when we don't comply with the guideline. The quality of the ultrasound scan would be substantially reduced with potential harm and risk to the patients. Yep. So do you have any suggestions on how adherence can be optimised? Well, this is a good question. If we are going to form a guideline development group, we must make sure the guideline is developed through a rigorous process. First, we need to carefully choose the panel members, and we could potentially borrow the concept of Delphi method, going through several rounds of discussion and refinements before coming into the conclusion. I believe the guidelines should be short, clear, user-friendly, and accessible. The group also needs to have a strategy to foster the implementation and adherence to guidelines. As non-adherence is often associated with lack of awareness and unfamiliarity with the guideline, we need to promote the use of guidelines through active communication and dissemination, whether it's in conference or educational workshops, so people become familiar with it and adopt the guideline in clinical practice. Thanks, Gary. You've made some really great points about the need for quality guidelines, and you know, these are also relevant to other areas of ultrasound other than vascular and um, chronic venous insufficiency ultrasound. Thanks so much for your time today. I hope our listeners have gained some insight on the importance of having quality guidelines for sonographic practice. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ASA podcast. Head to the show notes or the ASA website to find more information, resources and CPD activities.